Good morning. I couldn't tell if you said good morning or just morning. I hope it's good. It is morning, but I hope it's good. Uh, welcome you to our services here, uh, especially those of you who I can see, but I know some of you are joining us online. So even if you're at home or in your car or in your workplace, we welcome you. Um, our expectation is that as we open God's word together to John chapter 11, that he would speak to us and in doing so would do a powerful work in our lives today. And that's what we're praying for. and That's what we're expecting. We're in John chapter 11, and uh, if you're visiting with us today or haven't been here in a while, um, last week we started chapter 11 with the first 16 verses looking at the beginning of the story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And we talked about last week how there's so much packed into this story, it's going to take like four weeks to get through it on Sunday morning. So we're going to make it through another 10 verses today uh, from 17 to 27. We still haven't made it to the point where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, but we've definitely made it to a powerful moment in the story. And so one of the things we, we talked about last week is on the onset of this story, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus' illness is not aimed at death. Now, knowing that Lazarus will actually die, what Jesus is saying is that's not the ultimate purpose behind Lazarus' death. It's actually aimed at a greater purpose. And Jesus says this, here's the greater purpose, glorifying God, glorifying myself. And so we talked about that last week, how when God glorifies himself in our lives, even in our struggles, it's to our good. It is a loving thing for God to glorify himself to us. And so now we're in a part where Jesus refers to himself as the resurrection and the life. So we're going to pick this up in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning the brother. So just some context here. First of all, this is a story that includes three siblings, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Most likely, as I think we'll see even in this story, these are the same two sisters in Luke chapter 10 who had Jesus in their home. One sister was busy in the kitchen. The other one was in the living room hanging out with Jesus. The one in the kitchen, Martha, was anxious about many things and even talks to Jesus about uh, his, her sister and says, hey, would you tell her to get off her duff and get in here and to help me get all this stuff together? And Jesus confronts Martha and says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about a lot of things that don't matter. You should be in here with your sister. She has found the one good thing. And this is more than likely the same uh, sibling family. And now their brother, Lazarus, who we talked about last week, somebody who Jesus loved like a, a brother and like a friend, is now dead. Now the time stamp is important. I want to talk a little bit about that. So now when Jesus arrived or when he came, uh, he found that Lazarus had been already in the tomb for four days. So Jewish tradition, uh, people, when they die, were buried pretty quickly. But as you can imagine, at a time in human history when we didn't have a lot of you know, medical advancement, sometimes somebody wouldn't be dead and they would think that they're dead. They were just in a coma, right? And, and so there was this thing that would happen where the next day you're like, whoa, I thought you were dead and now here you are again. And, and so their tradition was to bury somebody relatively in close proximity before the end of the day when they died. However, what they believed was happening is that the spirit of that person would leave the body and hang around for a few days. And so that if that person woke up the next day, that was the spirit saying, nah, I think I'll just, let's do this again. Let's take another shot at this. And enters the body again, they come back to life. And, and so that was the tradition that for the first three days of a person being dead, the spirit would stay close by. 
Another one of the traditions would be that on the third day, um, the family would come to the tomb and this would, be the, this would mark the end of that period of just hovering and they would actually say the person's name out loud, call their name and see if they could hear anything. And if they didn't call back, then you know, all right, they're dead, they're gone, they're not, spirit's not coming back, the spirit is now gone. And so there are these traditions circulating in the minds of the people this time. And so when we hear that, that it took four days, what we have to understand as we saw last week is that it took one day for word to travel to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. And by the time it reaches Jesus, we saw last week, he's like, hey, Lazarus is already dead. So Lazarus has died. It took a day for that message to get to Jesus. Jesus stays there for two more days. And then it's a day's travel to where Lazarus was at, where he was buried at. And so he had been in the tomb four days. So this was an event where Lazarus was considered to be dead, dead. Okay, you with me? That's, that's why I think that's important. This wasn't one of those situations where you go, oh, we just thought he was dead and he was just, you know, he was in a coma or deep sleep. He was dead. And so it's been four days. Jesus arrives. Verse 20 says this, that when Martha heard Jesus was coming, remember this was the, the sister that was anxious in the kitchen, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now we've got a lot to un unpack here um, as this story begins to unfold. So, First of all, what I want us to see once again this week is how those who already believe in Jesus are given the opportunity to believe more deeply in him. So it's not like a, a light switch, you either believe or you don't, but even for those who believe, our, our belief, our faith uh, can be emboldened, it can be deepened, it can be fortified. We can understand more about Jesus today than we did yesterday and our faith can increase, it can grow. Okay, and so this is a situation where we're gonna see that happening uh, with several of the people involved. But here's a special moment with Martha because she's coming to him on one hand saying, if you'd only been here. That's actually a statement of belief, isn't it? If you'd only been here, you could have done something. You could have prevented this. You could have healed him if you'd only been here. But that's not her only statement. She takes a step further. She says, however, I know that, that God listens to you. I still know there's something you can do. I don't know what it is, but I know that God listens to you. And this is where she's at in her faith, in her belief in Jesus. And what we're gonna see now is that Jesus is gonna take really two things here and turn them. First of all, he's gonna take the idea of a resurrection and he's gonna take it away from being about an event. He's gonna make it about a person. And he's gonna take a moment uh, in the story that, that seems to be a whole lot about Lazarus and Jesus is gonna make it about Martha in this part of the story. And so we move to verse 25, and this is really the heart of where we're going today. So remember, we left off, Martha said, oh, I know about the resurrection in the end times. I know about the final judgment, and there will be a resurrection. And Jesus responds in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Listen, he's talking to somebody who believes. Do you believe this? Like, really believe it? 
do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, that last line is super important because John tells us that's the reason I wrote this whole gospel, is that you might see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. That's why I wrote all this down from chapter one all the way to the end so that anybody who reads these words would see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing in him, have eternal life in his name. So we know this is a really important part of the story. Let's back up for just a minute. First of all, when Jesus begins to talk about resurrection, the first thing on Martha's mind is the final resurrection of the dead. Right? It's something that we believe in. It's something that God teaches, that there will be a final judgment right, in which the graves will give up their dead, they will be judged, and there will be a bodily resurrection of the dead, physically. So we believe that as a church. It's in our statement of faith. We believe in a bodily resurrection in the end times. Okay, So that's what Martha's thinking about. But we know the context of the story. Jesus is about to resurrect somebody from the dead in real time right here. But instead of taking it from one event to another event, saying, hey, Martha, you know that thing in the end times? Yeah, but I can actually do that right now. He takes the idea of resurrection away from an event and he turns it towards a person when he says, I am the resurrection and life. And we're gonna do something together here that that may feel heavy, but I think is essential. For us to understand what Jesus fully means by calling himself the resurrection of life, we have to first understand the significance of resurrection, okay? And to understand the significance of resurrection, we first have to understand the severity of death. Now, that is a hard message in a culture that, 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 makes, that goes to great lengths to protect people from having to think about death. And think about that. Our culture like the culture we live in, we go to great lengths to, to sterilize our, our everyday living from the idea of death. We shield our children from it. Think about it. Like, I was just thinking about an experience I had in a, in a foreign country that's very different from the American experience. And um, I've been to the Philippines on numerous occasions with our church on trips there. And of the times I've been there, I think I've been three times, two of which somebody died in the local village or had just died. And the way that they, um, they interact with death is very different from the way that we interact with it. For example, so the first trip in, and I'm gonna have a hard time fully painting the picture. I'm gonna try. So we're in a foreign country uh, for the first time. There's a lot of unknown. So with that comes just a certain level of angst and excitement and apprehension. And, and we've been traveling for like 36 hours. So to say we were jet lag is an understatement. We were fatigued. We were tired. Been sleeping on an airplane or in a taxi or wherever we could nod off. And now we've made it to this village. Last five hours of this journey, we're on a motorcycle and not just me on a motorcycle, but me on a motorcycle with three other grown adults and all of our luggage, one motorcycle. And this is how our team enters into the village. 55 kilometers from any uh, town that has running water or electricity. Those of you who've been there, you're like, yeah, I did that, no big deal. (laughs) Crossing rivers on bamboo rafts. So I'm just trying to paint the picture. So we finally make it to this village 55 kilometers, five-hour motorcycle ride away from any electricity, any running water. We're in the middle of nowhere. Not to mention we are passing, uh, you know, armed 
uh, soldiers on the trail and camo and fatigues with guns. It was just a very intimidating situation. We finally make it to the village, and everybody's greeting us, and they're warm, and they're welcoming, like, whew, finally we made it. We lived. And so then we set up our camp on top of the hill overlooking the village in tents. And so each one of the Americans has a little tent. We've set up our tents, and we're ready to, to tuck in for the night. Like, finally, your head hits the pillow. We've made it. Exhaustion. Deep sleep. Two hours later, I began to hear something that I'd never heard before. It sounded like, hmm, like, I don't know how to describe it. The word I would, wailing. Like, you could tell it's coming from human beings, but you're not familiar with the sound. And it doesn't sound good. Somebody's just weeping uncontrollably off in the dark distance. Like, right, and it just wakes you from your sleep. You're like, whoa, what is that? And then it begins to trickle from one hut to the next, and it gets louder. As the word begins to spread around the village, people begin weeping and wailing and crying. And we're like, did they do this every night? Because this is going to be a long week. No idea what's going on. And this goes on for a couple of hours. And, and so you're not sleeping. You're there in your tent. You're like, you're listening for other Americans to make sure that, you know, you're not the only ones left standing. You're like, are you alive over there? Yeah. So we're, we're listening to this. And then what happens after a couple hours is the wailing begins to transition into celebration, singing songs. And before you know it, it's an all-out block party here in this village. Like, everybody has come out of their huts. They're all at this one house. And what had happened is that the oldest living person in the village had died that night, shortly after we had gone to sleep. And a family member had discovered, and, and this, so they began to weep and wail. They spread the word around the village, and they all came, and they, they take this, this individual's body and put him up on the table, and they all come to the house and begin to just be in the room, right? They begin to think about the stories and share and what, how much this person meant to them all around this dead body. And then it turns into a party, and they just continue on and on and on and on. Now, it's just an example because... You'd have a hard time finding that experience here in the United States, wouldn't you? I mean, as soon as somebody passes away, it's like, boom, and they're off somewhere to a funeral home or somewhere where something happens, and maybe we'll do an open casket, maybe we won't, but so much of the American culture is, is, is meant to shield us from the reality of death. And not to put it, not to make it um, too light, but here's why. Because we're scared of death. We're scared to death of death. Of all the things we face in this world, the thing we cannot overcome in our own strength with the greatest science, the greatest inventions of men is death itself. Now we've figured out how to put it off or to avoid it. We're better at that than we used to be as a, as a society, but we cannot overcome death and I think we're scared of it. I think embedded in every human being is this distant reality, I am one day going to die. Think about the last time you stopped to think about your own death. Right? It's a scary thing to think about, isn't it? And so until we understand the severity and the weight of death, there's no way we can fully understand the power of the resurrection and why it's so important to us. So when you look at the human story from a biblical perspective, in Genesis chapter 2, God tells us where death comes from. And he tells Adam there in the garden Adam, right now you only have the knowledge of what is good, but if you break my law, if you eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He tells Adam, this is where death will come from. Disobeying me, sinning, will lead to death. And so Adam and Eve are there in the garden. Chapter three unfolds. The serpent comes in and tempts them and, and starts to lie and twist the things that God says. 
Eve eats of the fruit and her husband was there with her. They both eat, they disobey God. And the immediate thing that doesn't happen that you're expecting is for God to go poof and them to die. But they don't, do they? They don't immediately physically die. But what happens? It's really significant. They immediately feel shame between one another. They immediately feel embarrassed that they're not hidden from one another and they begin to sow fig leaves and, and, and cover themselves up from one another. And then what happens right after that? They begin to hide themselves from God. And so while we might expect, by what God said, a physical death to be immediate, it's not immediate, is it? Right, but death itself begins to infiltrate the human heart, the human mind. The death itself begins to wrap its tentacles around Adam's heart and Eve's heart and, and shame embarrassment, brokenness begin to set in long before they ever experience a physical death. Now, from here on out, it seems like death is one of the most powerful forces on earth. It's the way that, that, that human beings have found the one sure way to control another human being, right? If, if, if you know, if trying to sell something doesn't work, trying to manipulate doesn't work, if abuse doesn't work, death, Right? I mean, that's the very next chapter, chapter four. Cain can't control his brother Abel, so what does he do? He kills him. He can't get Abel to do what he wants to do, to live like he wants to live, so what does he do? He controls the situation and he kills him. And death takes root in the human story. Whether it's physical death or death caused from somebody else, it's all the repercussions of sin. Sin leads to death. And before physical death, spiritual death sets in. You and I were born into this. Every encounter of suffering in your life is, is, is a repercussion from this event. Things are broken now. Things don't work the way God created them to work. You and I hide from one another. We're skeptical of one another. All of that bears evidence of death. Well, what I want to point to next is the end of death. We know that's where it began, so where does it end? Does somewhere in the human story, death just quit happening, and that's what happens to death? So you go to Revelation 21, listen to this description. Revelation 21, verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So now death is gone. What happened to it? Did God just at one point in the human story say, okay, nobody else is gonna die? Or did something else happen? And this leads us then back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul is writing about the resurrection of Jesus and he's thinking about the same thing Martha was thinking about, the final resurrection. And I want you to listen to the words of Paul as he writes about these things, starting in verse 54. He's looking forward. He says, when the perishable puts on imperishable. You're perishable, you know that, right? From a physical sense. I'm perishable, you're perishable. So he says, there'll be a time where the perishable puts on imperishable. And then he says it this way, and the mortal, that's us, puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That is not a small phrase. So stop for a minute. Death is swallowed up in victory. So it's not that one day in the far distant future, God will say, okay, death won't happen anymore. Just go. Something has to happen to death. Matter of fact, in Revelation 20, right? The graves, 
death, the sea, they give up their dead. The graves give up their dead. And then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Something happens to death. Are you with me? It's not like it just quits happening. Something has to happen to death. And what Paul is saying is, I'll tell you what happened to death. Jesus has victory. The resurrection of Jesus is Jesus' decisive victory over death. Think about that. It's one thing for him to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty big deal, right? But for Jesus to raise himself from the dead, that is an even bigger deal. That is Jesus taking on your number one enemy face to face, toe to toe, head on, and winning. And the decisive victory was won at the empty tomb, at the resurrection of Jesus. So that one day, there will be a resurrection of the dead. The dead will be judged. Death itself will die. If you go all the way back to even Genesis 3, there are hints of this. When, when, when God calls Adam and Eve to account, what have you done? And Adam's like, it's her fault. Blah, blame her. This woman that you gave to me, she messed everything up, God. I don't know. Talk to her. God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to talk to you. But then he says, hey, here's what's going to happen. Now, things are going to be different. To Eve, like you're gonna, like there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering involved and childbirth. And, and to the man, he's like, hey, remember how you used to just walk around the garden and pick fruit and eat it? Yeah, now you're going to have to cultivate the soil. And, 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 and things are going to be fighting against you, thorns and rocks. It's going to be hard. And you're going to sweat and you're going to bleed. Things are different now, Adam and Eve. But one of the things that, that God says is to Eve is, listen, this temptation thing, this serpent, like that's going to continue. This serpent is gonna to continue to be on your heels from now on, but there is a day coming, Eve, where one of your offspring will trample on the head of the serpent. This foreshadowing and this hint of the resurrection. The resurrection is the Lord Jesus Christ stepping not just on the head of the serpent, but on death itself and putting death to death. And I think it's so important then for us to understand what Jesus is saying when he points to himself as the resurrection, he's not saying the resurrection is an event, a future tense event, it's a present event. He's saying what? The resurrection is rooted in a person. It's me. Wherever I am, resurrection can happen. When, wherever I am, whenever I decide, resurrection can happen, Martha. You don't have to wait to the end. And I think this resurrection of Lazarus really is just a, Jesus just beautifully just showing this real life example of his power over life and death. Did it mean something to Lazarus? Yes. Was it personal between Lazarus and his sisters and Jesus? Yes. But I think bigger than that. I think in the same way Jesus stops and says, let's make this about you for a minute, Martha. I think Jesus stops and says to us, church, let me make this about you for a minute. This story of Lazarus, is, yes, it involves Lazarus, but it's also about you. How is it about us? We go back to the question Jesus asks. Or the statement, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And who, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's the question. Do you believe this? He asked this of a lady who had already confessed her belief in him. See how he's taken her, de her, her, her belief and making it deeper, fortifying it, growing her faith, Whatever belief she brought to the table, she's walking away with more. Now, I want to just for a minute talk for a, for a second about our lives and the ramifications of sin and death in our everyday life. 
So what Adam and Eve faced there in the garden, even before physical death, you and I face every day. The shame, the guilt, the brokenness of our own sin. Before sin will lead to your physical death, it leads to a thousand deaths in between. And it manifests in relationships primarily. Like some of your marriages right now feel like they're dying. Some of your relationships with friends and family members, maybe even other Christians, like you feel the sting of death. Uh, Beyond that, there's this repetitive cycle in our lives where anybody who's been a Christian for more than 15 minutes knows the sin struggle's not gone, right? If you've been there, you're like, wait a second, I thought I was a Christian, this was all supposed to be behind me, now I'm still struggling with this stuff. The Apostle Paul, he says it this way, he's like, man, why do I keep doing all this stuff I, I know I shouldn't do, and I can't seem to do the stuff I know I should do? Why? Because the cycle of sin and death. Now, Let's take a step back and look at the larger narrative of the Old Testament for just a minute. This came up in a Bible study that I'm in this past week, and I thought it, I thought it was really helpful for me to understand my own sin struggle, but this, this cycle of not just sin and death, but sin, death, and resurrection in our lives on a daily basis. I want you to think about as much as you know of the Old Testament, okay? If you had to sum it up, what's the story of the Old Testament about? One way you could sum it up, it's this repeated cycle of God rescuing people, them turning to him in blessing and then quickly gravitating towards sin and rebellion leading to destruction then God stepping in and rescuing which leads to blessing which leads to rebellion right and there's this redemption cycle in the story of the Old Testament I'll just give you some examples like the book of Exodus is so clear right God steps in to rescue his people from slavery they've been in slavery for over four centuries you would think that after being rescued from slavery, at least those who experienced it for themselves, like for the rest of their life, committed to God, right? That's not what happens. So God rescues them from slavery, leads them out into the wilderness, and it's not too far into their journey where they are building for themselves a golden calf to worship. What? Really? Like maybe... The next generation, no, the generation, like these are the people who are stepping out of slavery. They experience this, this, this separation of the Red Sea, walking across on dry land, God taking on Pharaoh's army, destroying like all these miracles. And then what? Hey guys, let's, let's build this golden cap. What? Like you're worshiping something that was not there to set you free. That's right. I mean, this golden calf was not there at the Red Sea to part the waters. Yeah, that's right. What? And yet, we, and we would think, right? I would think, like, God would get to that point and go, you know what? I'll find somebody else. I mean, really? Like, what, what else do I have to do to captivate your hearts and hold you? Like, I, I could so see God going, oh, my gosh, never mind. I'm going to try this with Pharaoh. They're passionate. Maybe they'll get it. No. God doesn't give up on his people. He steps in to redeem, and the cycle continues. They continue their journey. They get to the Jordan River. What do they do? They oh, we're to the promised land. Let's do this. What happens? No, they send in spies to kind of survey the land. The spies come back, and they're like, oh, we can't do this. What do you mean we can't do this? Like, this is the thing we set out to do. What do you, well, because there's just there's too many big people over there and they look mean and we just can't do this. All right. You guys camp out, sit tight. We're gonna let a whole generation die away. And you would think, God would go, you know what? 
I think I'm going to pick somebody else. You know, I mean, how many times do we have to do this over and over and over again? But does God give up on them? No. He raises up Joshua. In the next generation, they come into the promised land. You would think that all the struggle is over now, finally, right? It's not. God gives them judges. They're like, nah, we'd rather have a king. <sighs> really? Get the king, Saul. That doesn't turn out too well. Like, no, 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 that's not what we meant. We meant a really good king. Okay, so then he sends David. We see the cycle continue, right? Rescue, blessing, sin, rebellion, destruction, brokenness, and the cycle continues throughout the whole Old Testament. Listen, this is why I'm sharing that with you. That is the cycle of your life as well. That's why you continue to encounter a sin struggle. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that you're not saved. God is redeeming you. Now, here's what you have to understand. The power of that sin in your life is, is, is fueled by death itself. There's this intimate connection between death and sin. When you encounter sin, you're encountering death on some level. And so it's not therapy that you need. It's not just Christian accountability that you need to overcome sin. You need a resurrection. Not a future far off resurrection, you need a real-time resurrection in that moment, church. Think about that. The power of the resurrection is not found in events. It's found in a person. And he has invited you into a daily personal relationship with him that you can encounter the power of the resurrection on a daily basis. This is why I don't think Jesus referred to the resurrection as, a, as an event, but he said what? I'm the resurrection. Martha, I'm the resurrection. If you have me, you have hope beyond death. If you have me, you have hope beyond suffering. If you have me, you have power to overcome sin. I am the resurrection and the life. You know, the, the cycle of sin, death, and resurrection, I think it is embedded in creation itself. The more you look for it, the more you're gonna see it. Just a couple of examples, you know, just going out into the world today, you're gonna see the pattern of death and resurrection. I was in the truck with the boys this week and one of them asked me about, you know, dad, why do the trees always look like they die every winter? We were just talking about that. Like, well, I can explain it from a scientific level, right? Because the days get shorter, the temperatures get colder, there's not as much rainfall. So to, to preserve life, the trees go into this dormant phase where they look dead, right? The grass looks dead. But we don't expect them to not come back to life, right? And what's gonna happen here in just, just a few weeks, the days are gonna get longer, the temperature's gonna come out, right? We're gonna get into spring and everything is gonna come to life, boom. I love that. But why I love that is because it reminds me of the resurrection. Jesus himself uses an agricultural metaphor to describe death and resurrection. He'll do this in the next chapter in John 12, verse 24, referring to himself. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Think about the process of plants dropping seeds and the seeds growing. Have you ever seen wheat when it gets to this point where it lets go of seed? It's dead. It's no longer green and vibrant. It's yellow and it's brittle and it's dead. And the seeds fall off. They're dead. But something miraculous happens when a dead seed gets implanted in the soil under the right conditions. What happens? It comes to life. 
Like the birth of every plant should remind us of the resurrection. We could just keep going on and on and on, right? This idea of, of death, resurrection, is, it's embedded in the human story. It's embedded in your everyday struggle. You need the power of the resurrection every day. Every day. I want to I end here. I want you to think about your everyday struggles in life and how closely connected your everyday struggles are to the fall, Genesis chapter three, the entrance of sin and death. And it, and it may sound like we're inflating things or we're exaggerating it, right? But like, you understand like from a biblical perspective, all of your sin and suffering comes from that moment forward. The moment that Adam and Eve felt shame, they needed a resurrection. I don't know what you're struggling with today, but you need a resurrection. This is what we talk about in baptism, right? We're buried with Christ to do what? Raised to walk in a new life. We need that raised to walk in a new life like every moment of every day. And so if you're here today, first of all, and you're not a Christian, I'm about to pray for you. My prayer is gonna be that God would draw you to himself in the same way he's drawing Martha to himself. He would open your eyes to see him as the creator and the savior of the world and that you would believe in him the way Martha's believing in him right now. That's my prayer for you. And that by believing, you might have eternal life. But listen, eternal life is not this far off distant concept. It starts right now. And for those of us who are Christians, who know the struggle of sin far too well, like listen, today what we need is we need the power of the resurrection. It's not a far off concept. It's not just a fancy song we sing. This is the reality of the gospel. Christ's decisive victory over sin and death render power in your life today. If you have Christ, you have the power of the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And so I'm gonna pray, and however that lands on you, that, that God would work in your life today in that same way. And so I wanna pray now. Um, just so you're aware, at the end of our services, our elders all will have lanyards on. They'd be honored to talk with you and pray with you. Uh, if you join us online and you're listening remotely, just encourage you to press in through email or through the app so we can follow up. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna respond and our expectation is that God would move and work as we do so. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this powerful reminder of our deepest need. Father, truly we need a resurrection. And God, that is not just a resurrection in the final days. We need that resurrection, but God, in our everyday life to experience the power of Jesus. Jesus, you truly are the resurrection and the life. And so I just pray right now, any person that doesn't know you would be drawn to you. And I pray, God, for those of us who do, that, Father, we would think about that now as we leave out of here. It would be this constant, persistent heart posture, longing and desire to see your resurrection powerfully work in our lives on a daily basis. Father, we want to encounter the resurrection this week. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move through this room. You would move in living rooms and wherever people are hearing this, in cars and workplaces, and where we are broken and wounded, Holy Spirit, that you would press in and bring healing. Where we are 
prideful and arrogant, you would humble us and convict us. Where we are struggling with doubts and desperation, that you would fortify our faith. Holy Spirit, would you move and do a work in us today? We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.